The text for this morning's message is Romans 10, verses 13 to 21. Romans 10, 13 to 21. And so beginning reading in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. A long time ago, I preached on this paragraph and... uh, Through that and other means, God turned the hearts of one of our young couples to missions. And it was David and Faith Yeager, and she wrote me an email when she saw that I was going to be talking about this. And she said, just just remind the people that God may do something absolutely life-changing this morning. And so I do thus remind you. This week, David Yeager, who's our business administrator, on the 3rd of September will leave and uh, go by himself to Monrovia, Liberia, and there he will oversee the distribution of food for SIM to those desperate people. And so I want to, as it were, dedicate the preaching of this text again to David as he goes and asks for God's blessing and help on his life. Let's pray. Father, I rejoice in 60 single people or families that are out from us. They'd love to be here singing with bright lights and air conditioning and a thousand folks. But they are gladly laying it down in order to extend the arms of God to a disobedient and contrary people. And I bless you for them. I rejoice in them. And I ask your great blessing on them all. And for David in particular as he goes, keep him healthy, keep him strong, protect him in that volatile city. And may, in the name of Jesus Christ, food find its way to the hungry, who will then be sustained in life and see Christ in those who deliver Mercy in his name. And now, Lord, be merciful to us here, I pray, and enable me to speak the truth of this text with converting and calling 
and healing and transforming power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I began this sermon on June 1st and kept referring in the sermon to next week I'll do this and next week I'll do that. And God in his providence saw that I would not do that the next week. And so here I am on August 31st finishing the message I began on June 1 from this paragraph, Romans 10, 13 to 21. Now, what I did back in that sermon was to point out that there are five things God has begun to put in place that are required if anybody is to be saved from sin and from hell. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He rose again. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And then, let's read verses 13 to 15. Everyone who now calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So those five things I began to talk about. And I talked about the first two. What is it to call upon the name of the Lord? And what is it to believe and promise that I would come back and talk about the remaining three steps, the sending, the preaching, the hearing, and that's what I intend to do this morning. However, as I pondered how to do it, that part of the sermon became a little short conclusion. And pressed on my mind and heart were two other things that are in this text that I think need to be stressed this morning. One is the unbelief of Israel, then and now. And the other is the relationship between the sovereignty of God over the human will and the responsibility of man. And when those two things come together, as they do in this text, they produce a third question which will be the finishing of the sermon from June 1st. So that's the order in which we will go. So number one, point number one, the unbelief of Israel. This is the painful, tearful, sorrowful theme running through Romans 9, 10, and 11. It began with Romans 9, 3, goes all the way to the end of chapter 11. In Romans 9, 3, Paul said, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, Jews, Israel, are accursed and cut off from Christ because they're rejecting their Messiah. And Paul if he could, wishes to stand in their place. Then verse 27, we see it again of chapter 9. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Then you see it again with the ache coming through in chapter 10, verse 1. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they might be saved, but I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God and it does not accord with knowledge. You see it again in chapter 10, verse 16. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? You see it again in verse 21 of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul is carrying this burden from chapter 9 to chapter 10. He carries it right into chapter 11. Look at the first verse of chapter 11. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, the unbelief of Israel as a whole is not the whole story and it's not the end of the story. There's a great word of hope in chapter 11, verse 25. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, that is non-Jews, and this is a warning given to us. Because Paul says very plainly in chapter 11 that Jewish branches have been broken off in their unbelief in order that Gentile wild olive branches might be grafted into the promises made to Israel. Which is why anybody in this room is saved. Any Gentile in this room who hopes to be forgiven for your sins and to escape damnation is saved and will escape precisely because you have become a true Jew and are grafted into the promises made to Abraham. And he said that, which might mean that we'll start to become proud and uppity and say, we were grafted in because they were broken off. And therefore he says this to us, verse 25 of chapter 11, Lest you be wise in your own conceits. He's talking to Gentile Christians. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. See, they're brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. In other words, don't boast over the broken off branches because I'm coming to get them and save Israel. From chapter 9, verse 3, actually it starts earlier, to the end of chapter 11, the burden on this man is, what can I say about unbelieving Israel? What can I say about the fact that the chosen people of God, with whom he has worked for 2,000 years, showing special redemptive blessings over and over, what shall I say that they have rejected the Son of God, their appointed, promised Messiah, and therefore they are unbelieving, cut off from Christ, and accursed? What shall I say about that? And one of the main things he wants to say is, The word of God has not fallen 
It looks like it has. All that work, all those words, all those promises, all those prophets, all those teachers sent. And when the son came, they rejected him. Chapter 9, verse 6 sounds the note that rings across all three chapters. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the main point of these chapters. The unbelief and lostness of Israel is not a sign of the failure of the purposes, plans, and word of God. And his first argument from verse 6 to verse 23 of chapter 9 is, it is not a failure because God unconditionally, sovereignly, and freely elects whom he wills from Israel to fulfill those promises. which we spend a long time on as a church, and none of you newer people have any of the benefits of having pondered with us that huge teaching of the sovereignty of God in unconditional election. Some of us, over the duration of our lives, have been shaken to the foundations of our being by this doctrine. And some of us have pretended it wasn't there. And some of us have argued against it mightily. And some of us have wept over it deeply. And we have come to the point where we have bowed our minds and bowed our hearts before it in submission to the all-wise, all-good, all-sovereign God and have discovered when we got up from our faces this is one of the sweetest, most precious building stones in the foundation of my fragile house of faith that I could ever imagine. What will you hold on to when all around your soul gives way and it looks like the world has gone totally out of control and the world seems to be a place of utter absurdity and meaninglessness? Or as one mother of a dying daughter said to me on Tuesday, it's just cruel, it's just cruel. What are you going to hold on to? I, for one, see in the Bible, live by, and want to preach this truth. It won't help if God is good and helpless. It will only help if God is good and sovereign. It may look cruel, it may look absurd, it may look meaningless, it may look out of control, but it is not. And we will hold on till our dying breath, God is good 
and God is sovereign, and God has meaning and purpose, and I will not give up to the absurdity of appearances, but will hold fast to the truth that he has revealed about himself in his word. Which brings us now to point number two. The first point is the unbelief of Israel running through chapters 9, 10, and 11, and which is so visible here in chapter 10, 21. And now the second point is the relationship between the sovereignty of God, which I just highlighted from chapter 9, and the accountability of man, which is so obvious in this paragraph. The point of these five steps in verses 14 to 15 is that Israel is responsible for her unbelief. In other words, the sending, the preaching, and the hearing have happened. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? You can hear the answer in the tone. Have not these conditions of sending and preaching and hearing been met? And he answers, indeed they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19, verse 4. Their voice has gone out to the end of the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now in the context of Psalm 19, that's a statement about general revelation. The message of God delivered through the order of the universe and the beauty of the universe the design of the universe. I'm not sure if Paul, as he quotes those words, means for them to be taken in their original sense. Because he doesn't quote them as scripture. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't say, as David said. He doesn't say, he doesn't even tell us that he's quoting. He just uses the words. Which leaves open at least the possibility that he's just using the words to make his point, which in the context seems to be, these Israelites are accountable because just as in the Old Testament, God had a will to scatter his truth to the nation, so here God has a heart to scatter the gospel of Christ as far as he can, and it has reached to the Jewish people, and therefore they are accountable. Whether or not that's the precise way the words are to be taken, the main point is clear in this text. Namely, Israel is responsible for unbelief. And you can see it underlined in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, But I ask, did Israel not understand? Did Israel not know? And then he answers by quoting Moses. First, Moses says, I will make you, you Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation. That's Gentiles, that's us. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In other words, the gospel has come, the Messiah has come. It's spilling over the banks of Israel. It's penetrating to the nations and the nations are embracing it. And they are inheriting the promises made to Israelites And the prophecy is Israelites should see this and become jealous and embrace the Messiah. Oh, he's mine. You Gentiles are taking him as yours. That's exactly what God wants to happen. 
So what he's saying here is, even the prophecies of the Old Testament show you that the opening of the world to the Gentile and the Messiah coming to them and your rising sense of envy and jealousy is a fulfillment of something that signals it's here. Believe in him. So you are doubly accountable. The gospel on the one hand is being preached to you and you are seeing fulfillment of prophecy as Gentiles receive it and you don't. That's all written beforehand. Verse 20, he says it again. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Chapter 9, verse 30, all over again. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. What's the point of telling us that? The point is, again, Jews, Israelites, I've come to you. I've offered myself to you. I'm the fulfillment of your promises. I am the Messiah. I will save you from your sins. Believe me, accept me. And they don't. Instead, they're found by a people who weren't even seeking. The gospel streams to the nations. There are people groups all over this world who aren't looking for God, Jesus at all. And they're supposed to hear from you. And that's what was happening. It was like a megaphone to tell the Jewish people the Messiah has come. Sins are being forgiven. The kingdom is being established. Look at what is happening in the church. And here's the sad result, verse 21. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to you, to a disobedient and contrary people. All the prophecies, all the fulfillments, all the gospel availed nothing. But notice something in verse 21. Oh, how different it is from Romans 9. Oh, what a different picture of God than we got in Romans 9. In Romans 9, we heard, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in verse 21, we see, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, my aim at this point in the message is not to analyze how or to explain how those two things can be. That on the one hand, God is absolutely sovereign over the will of man. And it is not his will or his exertion that determines finally whether he is in or out. And over here, a God who, as we see in passages in the Gospels, with tears running down his face, stands before Jerusalem and says, How oft would I have gathered you? As a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. Oh, that today you knew the things that made for peace. I stand with my arms extended to you. 
why would you die? Oh, disobedient and contrary people. Both of these are true, and the sad thing is that we choose between them in the Church of Christ. Some embrace the sovereignty of God over the human will and say it is wrong to portray God standing with his arms stretched out before a rebellious people because that seems to say he's weak and has to wait for them to take the initiative. So don't describe God that way. And others embrace the responsibility of Man, And they say, look, God is standing with his arms outstretched to rebellious and wicked people. So he can't be sovereign over their wills. We do not choose between these two at Bethlehem. We say, amen, and yes, to both of them. Precisely because God teaches us to in the Bible. The reason they are sad mistakes, both of these mistakes are sad, is because the one group rejects something very precious that God has revealed about himself for our strength, for our hope, for our joy, for our love, namely his absolute sovereignty. Oh, how sweet How sweet to discover that God is sovereign when all around our soul gives way. It won't do to say that God is good and helpless. It will only do to say God is good and sovereign even if I can't understand it. And the other group... They embrace the sovereignty of God. But oh, how sad that they don't have a conception of God and therefore often they don't have a conception of themselves standing before a world broken and in need and perishing with their arms outstretched on his behalf saying, Earth, 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 why would you perish? Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price. Whosoever wills, let him come. Let him come to the water of life. They don't don't offer the gospel indiscriminately. They don't offer the gospel with tears. They don't plead and and ache and long and pray and yearn and persuade and woo because they're so damned lopsided in their affirmation of the sovereignty of God. What a sad thing that the church has been choosing between these two for so many years. I just invite you, I plead with you, I urge you not to choose. Now, I said my aim is not to 
analyze how they can be, but I am going to do this. I am going to read you three other passages of Scripture where both are true. And my hope is that God will persuade you, not me. Philosophy will never work here because most people choose against an aspect of biblical truth because they think philosophy demands it. Like, you have to have self-determination in order to be held accountable. So if they're held accountable, which they are in verse 21, therefore they have to be self-determining, therefore God cannot be the one who determines, and therefore that cannot be true. That kind of thinking is damnably wrong. It takes a postulate from theology or from philosophy that you must have self-determination to be held accountable, which is never taught in the Bible, and presses it on the Bible to silence hundreds of its verses. That's really tragic. Let me just read you the three other passages, and I'll read them more quickly than you can look them up, so just note them down and you can look and meditate later. Here's Jesus talking in Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Not come to me, you little children. Come to me, all you wise and understanding from whom I have hidden these things. Come to me. Second, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Two verses later, all the Father gives to me will come to me. I invite you all to come drink. And my Father gives some to me. Third, Acts 13, 38. This is Paul preaching in Antioch. Let it be known to you, he preaches to the synagogue, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed. Verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All are invited, and as many as were appointed to life came. I'm not explaining. I'm documenting. I'm proclaiming what the Bible says. Man is not ultimate. God is ultimate. We are clay, God is potter. We are derivative, God is absolute. God is self-determining, I am not ultimately self-determining. I will never be able to trump the card God triumphantly throws on the table. 
I will not be God of the universe. God will be God of the universe. And he holds out his hands all day long to a contrary and disobedient people. Now, here's the third point of the message which we're driven to by the first two points. Point number one, the unbelief of Israel and our unbelief. Point number two, the sovereignty of God does not mean that it is nonsense or contradictory when God, with tears rolling down his face, extends his hands to his own people and to the nations, saying, Why would you die? Come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. What we're pressed now to ask as the third point is, if that's true, where does the world see those extended arms today? Where does the world today hear the voice of Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks and you would not? Where today does Minneapolis hear that voice from the mouth of Jesus? Where do they see the arms of God ready to embrace the world, waiting And the answer of this text is, God sends, people preach, and people hear. Those are the three pieces that I said I would come back to. How shall they believe in one they've never heard? And how shall they hear one who isn't preached to them? And how shall there be an authoritative anointed preacher unless God sends them? God is undertaking to let his arms be seen and his voice be heard by sending human beings to Minneapolis and to the nations and to the urban center. Now be very careful, Bethlehem, right here. Lest you say, I'm not sent, and so I guess I won't speak, because it's the sent who speak, who hear, that bring about faith. So I'm not sent, so I won't speak. Why would you say that? Unless the Spirit of Christ isn't in you. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, wouldn't you say, here I am, send me. What would I rather be than Christ to the perishing? What would I rather be than the voice of Jesus pleading, wooing, persuading? What would I rather do than than take these physical arms and get them around some unbeliever and say, this is the way God feels about you? Unless, of course, the Spirit of Christ isn't in you. But if Christ is in you, then children who are ready to go back to school now, wouldn't you say on the first day of school 
or the first week, I'm scared, I'm nervous, and I want to be a good witness for Jesus this year. And so, Lord, here I am. Send me. Wouldn't you say that as a child? Isn't that the way you'd pray at eight years old? Eighteen years old? Twenty-two years old? Senior in college? Isn't that the way you want the year to be? Here I am, Lord. I don't feel real sent. I don't feel real empowered. I feel like my words always fool up. At this point in my message yesterday, I I stopped and I said, Oh, I wish I could preach one more sermon on this text. Which I'm not going to do. We're going to stop. But if I could preach another sermon on this text, it would be, what does it mean to be sent? What does it mean to be sent? How shall they believe if they don't hear? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach if they're not sent? What does it mean to be sent? So I'll sum up that sermon in two minutes. And then we'll be done. There are two kinds of sending, at least. One is a very vocational, formal sending. It lands on a person like it did on me in 1966, and then again in 1979 with a much more clear form. And it rests on me with such a burden to preach the gospel and lead a people of gospel tellers. I couldn't get out from under this if I tried. Now, not everybody gets that kind of vocational You're in it for the long haul, and you are mine, and you open your mouth or you're dead. (laughs) However, there is another kind of sending. I would call it occasional and spontaneous. And I mean it as broad as, when we're done in three minutes, will your heart, filled with Jesus, say, I'm available. Who in this room on my way out needs me? Where's the visitor who isn't hooked up with anybody? They're just totally alone in this big room. And they're going to make their way out and nobody's going to talk to them. Lord, I want to go there. Put a radar on my head. That would be that would be a kind of divine sending. If you offer yourself up to God, if you ask for his anointing and your help, just for something that simple, I think that's a kind of sending. Or this afternoon, what about the telephone? You see it on the wall there? You see it on the wall and you know there's somebody you need to call. You know there's somebody who needs Jesus. Somebody who's suffering through something, some crisis in their lives. You heard about it and you know you need to get on the, on the phone. I met with somebody down in South Carolina recently and I couldn't believe how much I take for granted at Bethlehem. But that person had just for the first time in their life, I think they were in their 40s, seen somebody pray on the telephone. It blew them away. Well, you may have never seen anybody pray on the telephone. You ought to pray on the telephone every day. Because the Bible says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And our small groups only meet weekly. God invented telephones to fulfill Hebrews 3.13. In this atomized country of ours. So, um, my point is, I think you can all be sent if you want to be. 
If the Spirit of Christ is in you because you've trusted him and he's stirring you, oh God, I don't want to leave people who are without Christ. I want to go there. If it's go to the urban center and live there, if it's go to Uzbekistan and live there, if it's cross the classroom tomorrow in school because you see a lonely person, cross the office tomorrow morning, wherever it is, don't say, I'm not sitting there for I'm not speaking. Rather say, here I am. Send me. Because how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. <laughs> feet are not pretty. I said that June 1st and I got letters. <laughs> I got letters. I got letters from parents who just had a little baby and they said, my little baby's feet are beautiful. I, said, I didn't mean it that way. Here's the way I meant it. When I was in Cameroon, I met a woman named Olive Shell. I really am done. This is the last thing I'm saying. When I, when I met Olive Shell, she was pushing 80. She has a Ph.D. in linguistics. She travels around the world with everything she owns in a suitcase. And she counsels translators because she's so experienced in this. And she was on her way back to the United States to take some refresher courses <laughs> at 80. Come on, all you old people. <laughs> but here was the most amazing thing about Olive Shell. She wore Birkenstocks. At least that's what they looked like. And her feet, you know, you never wear stockings, of course, in Cameroon. Her feet were really old feet. And it looked like these Birkenstocks were oozing up between her toes. They were just one piece, foot and shoe. It was just all one as she walked. And I looked at those and I said, those are the most beautiful feet I have ever seen in my life. And I know a lot of you ladies try hard to make your feet look attractive, you know, with the color and all that. Forget it, you know, it's just hopeless. But if, if you want to have beautiful feet, take the good news somewhere. Take the good news somewhere and you'll forget all about the outer man and you'll become a beautiful person. Let's pray. Chuck will come. He's going to lead us to sing that in just a minute. But let me just pray it for us. Father in heaven, I pray for David with his beautiful feet as he leaves here now on Wednesday. I pray for the beautiful feet of our missionaries all over the world to be strong and stable and not slip. I pray for the beautiful feet of people who move into the inner city and risk their house and their car and their lives to love cocaine dealers and prostitutes. And I pray for the beautiful feet of people who live in the suburbs and see all the brokenness in the marriages around them and all the kids flipping out in their crazy lifestyles and who get involved where the pain is and become beautiful by holding out their arms the way you hold out your arms as a sovereign God, welcoming all who come. So, Lord, I pray that you would make us mighty to speak the word, that you would send us 
Lord Jesus, and make our feet beautiful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.